Let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at his word. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we do thank and praise you for giving us your word and for telling us the truth about what to expect in our lives. Please help us to understand clearly what you were saying to us. Help us to live appropriately in the light of it. Please uh, dwell with us now by your spirit and help us to understand your son. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard the term expectation management? Expectation management. It's originally a business term. It's a bit of a buzzword now, I think, isn't it? Well, uh, this is the issue that it's trying to deal with. Okay, this is the issue it's trying to deal with. Let me quote from a business website. To a large extent, people declare that a project has either succeeded or failed based on whether it met their expectations. Few projects fail in an absolute sense. They simply fail to meet individual expectations. People decide whether something succeeded or failed based largely on what they expected should happen. And so business business people try to manage their clients' expectations, get them ready for what's going to happen. Expectation management is defined, I think badly because it uses the word expectation, but it's defined in this uh, business website as follows. A formal process to identify and monitor the expectations for persons participating in an interaction and to apply the information to make the interaction successful. Okay, do you get the point? What people expect to happen influences how they perceive things. And so business people say it's good for them to know what to expect. It's good to manage people's expectations. As a Christian, what kind of a life are you expecting? What do you expect God will do for you in this life? What, is God, what kind of a life does God promise us? I think most of us as Christians, we expect a nice life. It makes sense. I mean, God is on our side, isn't he? God loves us. He gave Jesus to live and die and rise again for us. All our sin is forgiven. We've become God's children. If we have children, we want to give nice lives to our children. It makes sense to assume that God will give us nice lives as his children. There's a movement going around called the Prosperity Gospel. And people in this movement say, if you follow Jesus, he will give you a nice life. He'll heal your sicknesses. He'll give you lots of money and happiness. They say you'll prosper in this life if you follow Jesus. But of course, this way of thinking isn't limited to the prosperity gospel movement. I reckon it is something that we all assume to some extent. What do you think? What do you think? What, what kind of a life do you expect here on earth? Do you expect God to give you a nice life? Do you anticipate freedom, peace, a good job, nice holidays, enjoyable leisure time, a house to live in, possessions to enjoy, good health, easy relationships? Do you expect to have the good things of this world? We do, don't we? We do. I can tell that we do because if they're threatened or taken away, we get very grumpy about it. 
I think that we probably treat these things as rights. We get angry with people. We even get angry with God if we don't get them. So if things go wrong, we start asking questions. God, what's going on? Uh, What's happened to my nice life? Why am I suffering tragedy? Why are my relationships difficult? Why haven't I got my health? Why haven't I got my wealth? What have I done wrong? What have you done wrong? God, what's the problem? What's going on here? Many people here have already experienced bad things, lots of bad things. You've lost loved ones. You've suffered sickness. What does it mean? Can you see? What we expect our lives to be like will influence how we relate to God and whether we think that, that this is right. What if things go wrong? Is that unexpected? Does it mean God doesn't love you? Does it mean you've done something wrong? Does it mean Christianity isn't true? Does does it mean you should give up on God? What we expect from God will influence how we relate to him. And so it's a good idea for us to manage our expectations. To get clear from God's word exactly what we can expect from this life. And that's what we find in our next section of 2 Timothy. And do you remember from last week... Paul, he's been telling Timothy how to handle false teachers. Um, do you remember he said, uh, he said, God is the only one who can convert people. And, and so he said, don't argue or fight with false teachers. Just gently, kindly teach the truth. Come back with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Timothy needs to be kind to everyone, gently instruct. But Paul wants him to be perfectly clear about something. Paul wants him to get his expectations right. And so Paul tells Timothy what to expect in the last days. Now, when Paul says the last days, um, he doesn't mean just the last couple of days before the second coming or something like that. The last days is a term used in the New Testament to mean from the time Jesus ascended into heaven until the time Jesus returns. Okay, from the time Jesus went up to heaven until the time when Jesus returns. In other words, it was Timothy's own day. In Timothy's time, it was the last days. And, of course, it's still the last days today. They've been going for some 2,000 years. Okay, so Paul tells Timothy what to expect in the last days, and he starts off by talking about people in the last days. And I've got to say, it's not a pretty picture. This is not a happy, happy painting. He says that people will be selfish, people will be sinful, including people who look religious. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 3 and verse 1. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. It's a striking list, don't you reckon? Not a pretty picture. And As I've looked at this list during this week, the thing that's really struck me is the love words. Just just look with me again. 
People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. A little bit further down. Without love. Interesting. I mean, if they love themselves, love money, what's without love? I guess it's without love for other people, is it? Um, A little bit further on. Not lovers of the good. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's It's a bleak picture of humanity's rebellion against God. We have diverted our love. Instead of loving God, instead of loving other people, instead of loving what is good, we love ourselves we love our pleasure we love money for ourselves stuff for ourselves <clears throat> i gotta say that rings true for me as i've just reflected on myself during the course of this week as i've reflected on what i truly love i think my love is often misplaced sorry if this is too much detail but if you go to my toilet and look on my magazine rack you'll find the Christian magazines underneath and the guitar magazines on top at the moment. <laughs> My love is misplaced. I've been reflecting on what I really, really passionately feel about. It's not always God and good and other people. It's often me and money and pleasure. The more I think about it, the more it strikes me. A big part of being a Christian is the challenge to change what we love. Jesus says we've got to repent and believe the gospel. And when he says repent, he doesn't just mean change our thinking. He doesn't just mean, I used to not believe in Jesus, now I do believe in Jesus. He doesn't even mean just change our behaviour. I used to be naughty, but now I'm good. No, no, it's repentance means changing what we love. That is a very deep work. It can only be done by God's spirit. Anyway, um, Paul says that people will be selfish and sinful in these last days. And so he tells, he tells Timothy what to do. He says, he says, don't have anything to do with them. At the end of verse 5, have nothing to do with them. Now, when Paul says this, he obviously doesn't mean stay completely clear. He doesn't mean go and hide in a monastery or something like that. We've just read Paul telling Timothy to gently instruct those who oppose him. So he can't mean have nothing at all to do with sinners. What does he mean? Well, I think he's saying don't get caught up in their way of life. Don't, don't spend all your time quarrelling with them, as we saw last week, but don't follow their bad behaviour either. Don't, don't let yourself be influenced by them. Don't conform to their ways. No, be different. Stand out. Stand up as different. Okay, and then what Paul does is he, he narrows it down to some particular people who are going to cause trouble to Timothy. He talks about people who oppose the truth. Um, people who are false teachers. And he talks about these false teachers who in Ephesus were targeting and exploiting certain women. Verse 6. They, or literally uh, of these, are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Interesting there. Don't you think the way these false teachers target women? What's going on there, do you reckon? Well, a possible clue is back in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, Back in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul talked about some young widows, some young ladies whose husbands had died. And uh, he says, basically, 
they've got too much time on their hands. He said they're getting in the habit of becoming idle. He said they're becoming gossips and busybodies. He says that some have already turned away to follow Satan. So maybe that's who he's got in mind here again. Maybe they're the ones being targeted by the false teachers, some of these younger widows who were there in, uh, in the church in Ephesus. Although uh, the reality in Ephesus, where Timothy was, the reality is that women were just more into religion than men. That's the way it was in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city uh, where women, or free women at least, had a lot of power, a lot of freedom, a lot of ability. They were often educated, and religion in Ephesus was very much feminine. The Ephesians worshipped a goddess, Artemis of the Ephesians, also known as Diana. In mythology, the goddess Diana had rejected marriage and children. She lived as a hunter and as mistress of the animals and goddess of the moon. For a bloke to become a priest in their religion, he had to be castrated. As you can imagine, it wasn't all that popular a career choice. Uh, There were plenty of blokes who made money out of religion in Ephesus. You'll find them in the book of Acts, plenty of idol makers and so on. But in Ephesus, religion was largely for women. Uh, That is part of why, back in 1 Timothy, Paul has to tell Timothy to make sure he doesn't allow women to take over the church. It doesn't allow them to teach men or have authority. Part of why in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul has to remind the wives to be subject to their husbands. Paul has to keep on calling the men to step up and take a lead in church and in family because religion in Ephesus was largely women's business. Maybe that's why the false teachers in Ephesus were targeting women. They were just more interested in religion. If that's true, it is certainly still true in Australia today. The fact is... Women in our culture are more interested in religion and spirituality than men. Women make up well over 50% of church membership. And in other religions, the disparity is even greater. A few years ago, I went to the Mind, Body, Spirit Festival. I tell you what, if you ever want to go to see a haven of false teaching and ridiculousness, that is the place to go, the Mind, Body, Spirit Festival. Uh, My guess, as I sat in there for a week and uh, and watched people coming past, I reckon there were 75 to 80% women there. Uh, Plenty of blokes selling stuff, but the visitors were nearly all women, handing over their money. Uh, Women seem to be more interested in religion. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe that's why the false teachers target them. Anyway, whatever the reason, that's what was happening in Ephesus. That's what Paul tells us. Uh, And he goes on to talk more about these false teachers. He says that they oppose the truth. Uh, Paul, like Moses, has taught the true message about God. But he says these false teachers, they're like Janus and Jambres. Now, Janus and Jambres you won't find in the Bible. But in Jewish tradition, they were... That's the names of the magicians who opposed Moses. Do you remember when Moses came and, you know staff into snake and that kind of stuff and the magicians did the same stuff as they opposed Jewish tradition is that their names were Janus and Jambres okay and so uh, Paul says uh, I'm teaching the truth like Moses these false teachers like Janus and Jambres are opposing the truth but he says they're not going to get away with it they'll be found out eventually verse 8 just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses so also, also these men oppose the truth men of depraved minds who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected but they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, Janus and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone. All right, so I've taken you on a couple of tangents, but can you see what we've covered so far? Paul is warning Timothy. 
going to be tough. People are going to be sinful. False teachers will be around. Paul then goes on to give his own example. Again, to show how, how tough it is. Paul goes on to say, look, you've seen my life. You've seen how I'm striving to be godly. And you've seen how much I've suffered. He says, so far I've been rescued. But in a few verses, he's going to tell us that's it. He's dead. He's going to die. Verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Paul's done it tough. He's been godly and done it tough. And now he lays it out for Timothy. Here is the principle that Timothy needs to get clear. Here is what Timothy needs to expect. Paul says, anyone who wants to get fair income about living for Jesus is going to do it tough. Anyone who wants to get fair income about standing up for the Lord Jesus Christ is going to face persecution while evil and false teachers will keep getting worse. Verse 12. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's perfectly clear, isn't it? No secrets, no surprises. God is carefully managing our expectations here, isn't he? Here's how it is. If you stand up as a Christian... The world will try to knock you down. Paul's told Timothy what to expect. And so now he tells him what to do. He says you've got to stick with the message about Jesus. You've got to stick with the original gospel, the apostolic gospel. You've got to stick with Paul's gospel. And why? Because you can trust the sources. You can trust who told it to you. You can trust Paul. You can trust for Timothy, his mum and his grandmother. You can trust the scriptures of the Old Testament that, that, that show how to be saved through trusting Jesus and can show you how to be godly. The sources are trustworthy. Timothy needs to stick with the message. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right. Uh, In two weeks we'll think more carefully about the description of scripture because it's very significant. But for now, can you see what Paul's saying to Timothy here? Can you see how he's managing Timothy's expectations? Paul says, Tim, it's going to be tough. People will be sinful. False teachers will be out there. Like me, says Paul, if you stand up as a Christian, you're bound to be persecuted. In fact, anyone who stands up for Jesus will be. But, says Paul, Tim, you've got to stick with it. Stick with the message about Jesus. You can trust it. All right. It's not hard to see how this applies to us, is it? This just applies directly to us. Paul's expectation management here is for us. This is what we ought to expect. There will be terrible times 
in the last days. People will be sinful, including religious people. False teachers will trouble us. And verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what to expect. That is the context in which we will need to hold on to the original trustworthy message about Jesus. It's not what we naturally expect, though, is it? keeps on surprising us. It doesn't fit in with our North Shore dreams. It doesn't fit in with our parents' ambitions for us. But here it is. God says, you want to be a Christian? Great, I promise you, sinful people, false teachers, persecution, and you've got to endure. Welcome. All right. Well, a couple of things I want us to explore. Uh, first... What if we aren't suffering? What if everything's going great? What if our life is is nothing like what God says here in 2 Timothy? What then? That's the first question. Then the second question, what if we are suffering? Okay, first question. What if your life is nothing like what Paul talks about here? What if you're living a happy, comfortable life? What if you are enjoying all the good things that this world has to offer? What if you're facing no persecution? I think most of us have it pretty good, don't we? We face very little persecution, very little trouble. So what should we make of this passage? You know, I reckon what this passage should do is it should make us change when we ask questions of God. Let me explain. The times we start asking questions of God are when things are going badly. Okay, everything starts going wrong and we go, why God? What's wrong? What have I done? Why do you hate me so much? Etc, etc, etc. But then when everything's going fine, we go, oh yeah, of course. You see, completely upside down. Completely upside down. This passage says, no, no, no. What to expect is the suffering. What not to expect is the happy life. And so, The time we need to be asking the question is when things are going well and when things are are all happy and there's no persecution and everything's going fine. We we should be asking ourselves, what's going on here? Why is my life so nice and God says it shouldn't be? Why does God say everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus is going to be persecuted and I'm not being persecuted? What is going wrong with my life? Is it because I'm a wimpish Christian? Is it because I just fit in with the crowd? Is it because, contrary to what Paul has said to Timothy about having nothing to do with this sinful world and sinful people, I'm just in there completely indistinguishable from them? Is it because what I genuinely love is my pleasure and my my money and my, my joy and myself and not God and good and other people? Why are we living such nice lives? If it's because we're wimping out, then then we've got to repent, don't we? We've got to stop just loving ourselves and our pleasure and our money and our comfort and our ease. We've got to start loving God and loving what is good and loving other people. Maybe we don't suffer because we're wimps. I don't think that's the only reason. It's a possible reason, though, isn't it? 
I think there's another side to it though, because here in Australia we have religious freedom and tolerance. We have a government that provides us with good education and healthcare. Many people in Australia enjoy nice lives. And do you know what? A lot of that comes to us because of the impact of Christianity. We should thank God for the impact of the gospel in our society. We should thank God for the way Christianity has transformed our culture so that we value things like integrity. You know, that is a Christian virtue. You go to Bangladesh where we're trying to run a Bible college, nobody cares about integrity. In Islam, it doesn't matter if you lie. Integrity is a Christian virtue. We live in a, in a, in a nation that has great health care. Well, thank God for Christians. Christians started the hospitals. We live in a nation that has good education. Thank God for Christians. Christians started the schools. We live in a nation where there is religious freedom and separation of church and state. Thank God for Christians. You go to a Muslim country, it's not like that. We live in a country where we believe that we should work together as a society to give ourselves prosperity. Thank God for Christians and virtues of trust and tolerance and trustworthiness. We should thank God for the good things in our lives. We should thank God for the impact of the gospel and it is right for us to pray that they continue. Uh, Paul said to Timothy, back in 1 Timothy, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We can enjoy the good things of life. Uh, here, with praise to God, we can pray for their continuance, but in the light of 2 Timothy, we need to remember this. These are unexpected blessings. These are unexpected blessings. This passage makes that clear. These things are never our right. These things are not promised to us by God. These things have not been experienced by the vast majority of Christians in the vast majority of the world for the vast majority of history. We are a strange exception to the rule. It is not our right. These are unexpected blessings. Okay, that's if our lives are nothing like what uh, Paul is saying to Timothy. The second question, though, second thing to explore, what if we are suffering? What if life is tough? What What if we're suffering because of our own sin or foolishness? What if we're suffering because of the sin of other people? What if we're suffering under the effects of this fallen and broken world? What if we are facing persecution? Well, that's where this passage is really helpful, isn't it? What does it say to us? It says, don't be surprised. It says, this, this doesn't mean God doesn't love you. It says, this doesn't mean necessarily that you've done something wrong or ungodly. In fact, the very opposite may be true. This suffering could be because you're choosing to be godly. This passage is helpful because it manages our expectations. Here in the last days, we should expect it to be tough. That is normal and ordinary. I want to finish uh, with a conversation that I had a couple of years ago with a lady from our morning service. Um, I haven't got her permission, although she was here this morning and heard the story and recognised herself, but I haven't got her permission, so I'm not going to give her name. But uh, it's just a conversation that I had a couple of years ago in the house next door, and it completely blew me away. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realised how the fact that it blew me away meant that I had everything wrong. Let me explain. Um, This lady has had uh, some really, really bad things happen to her. 
some terrible, terrible things, things that have had a profound impact on her life, things that have made her life really, really hard. She is basically working her guts out from you know, four in the morning until one in the morning every day, killing herself, trying to deal with these bad things that have happened to her. And uh, they are going to be like this for the foreseeable future. There is no relief in sight. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. It's just going to keep going on and on and on. She was talking to me about it a couple of years ago, and she said something that completely blew me away. She said, she said Jeff, do you know what? She said, I've had to come to terms with this. God might not have a nice life for me. God might not have a nice life for me. That's a stunning thing to say, isn't it? It sounds totally wrong. And yet that's exactly what this passage is telling us, isn't it? God might not have a nice life for me. What am I going to do? I'm going to trust him anyway. Aren't I? Let's pray. Father and our God, we do thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has lived and died and risen again that we can be cleansed and forgiven and have the hope of eternal life with you. Our Father, you have warned us um, what life will be like in the last days. Thank you for warning us. Thank you for managing our expectations in this way. Please help us to be ready to persevere in Christ no matter what bad things happen. Father, we do thank you so much uh, that we have such nice lives. We acknowledge that this is an unexpected blessing. We pray that you'll continue it for us. We don't want to suffer. But Lord, help us to love you more than we love the stuff you give us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.